Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. First up, let's take a look at what's been making science headlines around the world this week. Kat? Yes, in the world of cancer research, there's growing evidence for cancer stem cells. These are rogue stem cells that fuel the growth of tumours. And when they divide, cancer stem cells produce new stem cells and they also make bulk tumour cells. And treatments like radiotherapy and chemotherapy, they kill off these bulk cells, but they don't touch the stem cells. So they carry on growing and the cancer comes back. Now, stem cells have been found in many types of cancer so far, including breast and bowel cancer and leukaemia. And now researchers at Stanford University School of Medicine in the US have found them in melanoma. That's the most dangerous form of skin cancer. And their research was published this week in the journal Nature. So how did they track these cells down? Well, led by Alexander Boyko, the researchers were studying the protein molecules on the surface of cells taken from melanoma samples, and they found that between 25 and 41% of cells in these samples had a protein called CD271 on their surface. And using a technique called flow cytometry, they were able to separate out cells carrying this protein and test their properties. But how do you actually separate out a cell that's just got one of these things on its surface? Sounds tricky. Um, You use a magic machine uh, called a flow cytometer and you can do that. And then the researchers transplanted these human melanoma cells into mice and they compared cells that carried the CD271 with cells that didn't have it. And they discovered that the cells with this CD271 were much more likely to grow into tumours than cells without the protein, suggesting they might be the stem cells they were looking for. But there's a lot more to a stem cell than that. So how do they actually know they were dealing with a stem cell? Well, this is the clever bit. When the researchers analysed cells from tumours grown from the CD271 positive cells, they found a mixture of human cells. Some carried the protein and some didn't. So this told them that these stem cells were not only making more stem cells carrying 271, but making bulk tumour cells too that didn't. And that's a classic giveaway of stem cell behaviour. But it's one thing to identify a stem cell. It's another to offer a tangible benefit to patients. The rates of melanoma have gone up by about 100% in 10 years. So where does this leave us clinically in terms of therapies? Well, for a start, the discovery of these stem cells does help to explain why many melanomas don't respond to immunotherapy. This is a treatment that harnesses the patient's immune system to destroy cancer cells. And the team discovered that the melanoma stem cells don't have certain proteins that are targeted by current immunotherapy approaches. So the body's immune system just can't see them and kill them. And so the cancer comes back. But now we know that these stem cells carry this protein, CD271, and the researchers can start working on treatments that target that or other proteins that are specific to these melanoma stem cells and that could lead to really powerful treatments in the future that are so urgently needed. Indeed, thank you Kat. Well assuming that the melanoma doesn't get you, what are your odds of living to be 100 or more? There's a very interesting paper published in Science this week. It's by a group of researchers at Boston University, Paola Sebastiani and uh, her colleagues and what they've done is to narrow down the genetic causes that could be leading to this. Now scientists have known for a long time that old age and the ability to live to an old age tends to run in families. If you look at certain families you will find an excess of people who tend to be very old. They'll live to be more than 90 and maybe even more than 100 routinely in those families and this strongly suggests there has to be something genetic to this. What this group did was what's called a genome-wide association study. 
What that means is they took a very big group, more than a thousand people who had lived to be more than a hundred. In fact, the oldest person in their group they looked at was 119 years old, and they compared those people with just under 1,300 individuals who had died about 75 years of age. So what they were able to do was by screening through the genetic material of these individuals, looking for something called SNPs, or single nucleotide polymorphisms. These are like genetic markers or signposts in the genetic material. And what you do is you look at a large group of people who have a certain trait, and then another group of people who don't have a trait, and you see if some of these SNPs, these markers, come up more often in people with the trait than those without. And that tells you that in those regions where those markers are, there are probably genes that have something to do with the trait that you're interested in. And when they did this, they found 150 of these genetic markers pointing at people who tended to be very, very old. In other words, have the ability genetically to live into a ripe old age. And by putting all of those together, they were able to derive a genetic test which would predict with 77% accuracy whether or not someone taken at random would have the likelihood, genetically speaking, of living to be more than 100. Uh, so, what, I mean, what, what use actually is this, apart from helping the Queen to maybe plan when she has to send those telegrams out? Well, why this is interesting is that this indicates what some of the key gene players are in the ageing process. Until now, ageing has been something of a black box. We understood some of the mechanisms. We didn't understand what genes help to defend us against the ageing process and mean that some people, therefore, can take the wear and tear of life a bit better than others. This new study means that now we can identify some of the genes which are responsible, ask what do those genes do and what is their contribution and how do people who carry certain genes fend off the ageing process better than others and therefore perhaps come up with better ways to make people age better or stop people getting certain diseases that they would otherwise get prematurely. And hopefully they can come up with a treatment that you can go in the room and remember what you went in there for. Anyway, uh, from, from ageing to sabre-toothed tigers. I love this story. It's my favourite story this week. Uh, far from being cute kitties, sabre-toothed tigers are lethal hunters. They were roaming North and South America until about 10,000 years ago, searching for bisons, camels and other rather unfortunate prey. And today we know them for their supersized teeth. They had exceptionally large canines for tearing into their prey. But now new research published in the journal PLOS One suggests that there's more to these feline killing machines than their teeth. And what's that? Well, this is work from Julie Meachin-Samuels and her team in the US who've been looking at sabre-toothed fossils. And they noticed that the sabre-toothed tiger canine teeth are actually oval in cross-section. If you cut through them, they've got an oval shape. Unlike modern cats, whose teeth are actually round if you cut through them in cross-section. Now, having oval teeth actually makes them quite vulnerable to fracturing and breaking. If you try and take down an animal and it wriggles around, you're quite likely to break your teeth. And that's not a good thing for a hunting cat. And this led researchers to think that maybe sabre-toothed killed their prey in a different way to modern cats and maybe didn't rely quite so much on their impressive teeth. And so how did they go about finding out whether that's true? Well, they measured bones from the forelimbs of sabre-toothed tiger fossils and compared them with 28 other cat species that are alive today, from a tiny cat to a tiger. And they found that the sabre-toothed limbs were much chunkier and stiffer than expected, with prominent muscle attachment sites on the bones. And this suggests that they were actually, you know, bruisers. Sabre-toothed tigers had exceptionally powerful and strong forelimbs compared to today's cats. So they're sort of more Newcastle cats than sort of southern softy cats, but how does this affect their methods of hunting and killing things then? 
big Popeye cats, yes. The scientists think that saber-toothed tigers may have actually used their muscular forelimbs to immobilise their prey before biting into them. This would really have protected their vulnerable teeth and built up their arm muscles even more. Now, today's cats have stronger teeth and relatively weaker forelimbs, so they probably rely more on their teeth for hunting than their ancestors did. We're talking of ancient things, even older than a saber-toothed tiger, is arguably the world's first and oldest example of a multicellular organism. In other words, an organism which is formed from more than one cell. When life got going on Earth, the first things to colonise the Earth were bacteria, just single cells. But at some point, something happened that meant that cells began to team up and cooperate together to form groups of cells that work together. In other words, multicellular organisms like us. But where did the first one come from? It could be that it evolved in what's now Gabon in Africa. There's a paper in the journal Nature this week by Abda El Albani from the University of Poitiers in France. And he and his colleagues describe an organism which looks a bit like a fried egg, actually. Um, it's about one centimetre across. It's got a central core, a yolk-like structure, and this is surrounded by a flat sheet of tissue, which is itself then divided by these radial cuts that come in from the periphery into the centre and it appears from the structure of the fossil to have been adding tissue around the edges so growing the white of the egg outwards and the scientists also chemically probed the fossil and they found that there are signs of a chemical called stearane in there and stearane is a substance which is derived from sterol which is a chemical used in eukaryotic cells in other words advanced forms of cells which are in say our bodies and plants and the animals around today that is regarded as a hallmark of eukaryotic or advanced cellular life, suggesting that this organism was a fairly advanced organism. Also, the iron that the organism contains suggests that it was also aerobic. It was using oxygen in its metabolism. And this is interesting because its point of origin, about 2.1 billion years ago, is some 200 million years after something called the Great Oxidation Event. And at the Great Oxidation Event, suddenly the oxygen levels on Earth began to rise very dramatically suggesting that this organism was one of the earliest multicellular aerobic life forms. Now, obviously, it's going to take a little bit longer to work out exactly what this thing was, what it was doing, and also to, to find out where it came from and what it turned into. These fossils are rare because the rocks are rare, 2.1 billion years, but at the same time, an amazing discovery because it means that now we have some kind of handle on how life as it is today got going in the first place. Now, also this week, uh, researchers in America have used a very powerful X-ray laser to strip away the electrons from an atom of neon. But they also have been able to very carefully strip away only those electrons which are closest to the atom's centre, creating, if you like, the atomic equivalent of a cord apple. Dr Linda Young is a distinguished fellow of Argonne National Laboratory, which is just outside Chicago, and she's with us to tell us how it works. Hello, Linda. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Do tell us if you could. First of all, what is this laser and why is it so special? This is the world's uh, first hard X-ray free electron laser, and it produces uh, X-rays that are about a billion times more intense than any other X-ray source before. The intensity is actually equivalent to taking all the sun's radiation on Earth and putting it into one square centimeter. So it's an exceedingly powerful X-ray laser. Obviously, you wouldn't use this clinically, uh, but you can use this to probe things like atoms at very, very high resolution. So tell us how you're doing that. Yes, that's right. Because this laser is so intense and all these photons come in such small bursts, you are, in fact, able to capture motion on the atomic molecular scale. 
within femtoseconds. This is about the time that it takes for molecules to vibrate within, you know, larger structures such as proteins. But because we had such an intense laser, and it's the first time anyone had had it, one really wants to understand how that very intense X-ray beam interacts with matter. And so you might think that if you take a trillion photons and focus it down to uh, a micron or so, you couldn't control at all what's going on in matter. But in fact, we find that we can control how the matter responds by tuning the photon energy of the X-rays and by tuning the pulse duration in which you deposit the X-ray photons into the atom. So tell us about the experimental setup just briefly. What did you actually do? Okay, so you take this very intense X-ray beam and you focus it down to about a square micron into a jet. That's a millionth of a metre we're talking here, isn't it? So um, a thousandth of a millimetre across. That's right. And uh, when you do that, you surround that interaction region by a number of detectors that can detect all the products of... of, uh, of the reaction. And so you can detect all the ions that are produced and all the electrons that are produced. And by having these very uh, high-resolution detectors, you can tell exactly the mechanism by which the neon atom becomes stripped of its electron. So you fire these very intense X-ray beams into, what, a cloud of atoms, and you say neon, so that's a noble gas, isn't it? Very unreactive. What happens to the atoms when they're hit with this very intense burst of X-rays? Well, that that depends on what photon energy you've selected. You can select a photon energy where you hit out the inner electrons first, or you can select a photon energy where you just peel away the outer electrons. So depending on on where you are in photon energy, you can do one one or the other. And how does this inform our understanding of of physics and and our understanding of, of atomic structure? Actually, what it informs you of is how very intense X-rays interact with matter. Before this X-ray laser was available, you were only ever able to knock out one of the inner electrons in a shot. But now with this very intense X-ray laser, you can knock out both of the inner electrons simultaneously. And that leaves you with this so-called hollow atom or cord atom. That hollow atom has um, different properties than a normal atom including the possibly advantageous property that when the inner electrons are missing, then the X-ray absorption uh, is decreased relative to the scattering cross-section, and the scattering cross-section is what forms an image for you to make um, further molecular movies or images of complex molecules. So what I would say is that we're just exploring a new regime of X-ray interactions with matter. Which is, of course, going to give you the opportunity to begin to understand and probe whole molecules at a kind of resolution in a way that we've never seen before. Linda, thank you very much. That's Dr Linda Young, who is from Argonne National Laboratory, and she's published that work in the journal Nature this week. And if you'd like to find out about any of the news stories that we're covering this week, we've put the details and the write-ups of those items and the references on the Naked Scientist website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.